finally, we come to our ASBS panel discussion on the management of early breast cancer. And to begin, I was curious about the perception surgeons have about medical oncologists. Over the years, in polling surgeons at various CME meetings, it's been my impression that a common sentiment that many surgeons have is that oncologists overutilize chemotherapy. With the recent advent of a series of research advances, including the Oncotype DX assay, oncologists now have the opportunity to be more judicious with these challenging decisions, and we polled the 500 or so ASBS surgeons at the meeting about their perceptions of how medical oncologists utilize adjuvant chemotherapy, specifically in patients with lower-risk node-negative disease. Of interest, the majority of the surgeons at the ASBS meeting believe that oncologists recommend, quote, about the right amount of chemotherapy to these patients, but about a third of attendees stated that oncologists use, quote, somewhat more chemo than is appropriate. To begin our panel discussion and an exploration of this important issue, Dr. Geyer presented his case. This was a 49-year-old perimenopausal woman practicing attorney who presented with a one centimeter grade two node negative, strongly ER positive, PR positive, HER2 negative, infiltrating ductal carcinoma. She had been amenorrheic for about 18 months and her surgeon had ordered estradiol FSH levels on her prior to referral, so I had those available. She basically came to the consult saying, I know there's chemotherapy is something that I have to think about but I really don't want it unless you can show me that there really is substantial increases in my likelihood of staying free of recurring disease. And so a lot of our discussions revolved around that. She did have fibromyalgia as a fairly significant underlying health problem that she was managing. To make the hormonal therapy question more interesting, she also had history of having had a thrombotic ischemic event, fortunately did not have a lot of neurologic residual, but had been evaluated by a coagulation specialist and was advised to take indefinite warfarin for the problem. Can you talk a little bit more about what her concerns were about chemo, where that was coming from? Did she have friends or relatives or sort of what specifically? It wasn't a case where she had family history and she had seen relatives go through things. I think with her, it was just more of a sense that chemotherapy is toxic and I'm busy and more of that negative sort of heard about it side of things. And what was her sort of family and life situation like? Did she come in with a spouse or significant other? Now, her primary support in her clinic visits were from friends. Do you think that she absolutely would not take chemotherapy under any circumstance, or maybe her bar would just be a little bit higher than the average patient? I told her initially that the available data suggested that broadly for node-negative ER-positive patients that the absolute improvement was about 4% for disease-free survival and a little bit less than that for overall survival based on her overall profile. I ran the adjuvant online, showed her those numbers, and her attitude was basically one of, well, it's got to be better than that for me to take chemotherapy. So we discussed the oncotype and that the patients with high recurrence score on that assay really derive substantially larger benefits than that 4%, 28% absolute in the B20 study. And she agreed that if that information were available, then she would, in a sense, reluctantly go ahead with chemotherapy. And I think that's an important element. You do need to decide before you order the test, are the results going to alter how we manage the patient that potentially, which was the case here. 
So you got the archetype on her? Yeah, she came back with an intermediate score of about 20. And so for her, that said no to chemotherapy. And we then had the discussions about hormonal therapy options with her history of the stroke and the fibromyalgia. So. so if it had been high, do you think she would have accepted chemotherapy? I think so. I mean, she came the first time and we talked about things. And I think I got the sense that she was going to go and kind of look around and confirm that what I was saying was out there. And I think she found it and was comfortable then relying on that to help her with her decision. Just a quick question to Hope. In your experience, when you see these patients, we'll talk about the X trial that actually would be involved here, but just a non-protocol situation. When you see women, younger women like this with an intermediate score, this case 20, they usually want chemo or not? You know, I think it's really 50-50. It depends on the patient themselves. And again, I have the same kind of conversation where if they're absolutely sure they're not going to get chemotherapy, you know, you might choose hormone therapy before the test. But I have to say that because in Taylor X, the idea is you randomize to either chemo or not with hormone therapy, either approach is currently acceptable. So it's very much the patient and how risk averse they are. And you can really get a very good sense with meeting for a patient a couple of times about where they really fall. The patients don't want to have any regrets. And patients who are very risk averse in this setting will often offer a regimen like TC, docetaxel and cyclophosphamide. And avoiding the anthracycline and potential risk in terms of leukemia and heart disease. I want to pursue a little bit more about this issue of accurate utilization of chemotherapy. I want to turn to Mel, actually, to get your perception of the medical oncology world. You have a really strong interdisciplinary team at your place. And I'm curious, looking back over the last three, four, five years as we see this thing play out, how it's actually affecting clinical decisions. Do you think that more women are avoiding chemotherapy, maybe patients like this? I mean, if she had seen those numbers, if she'd had a high recurrence score, she might have ended up taking chemotherapy. As you sort of take a step back and look at the oncologists across the hall for these no negative patients, how do you think it's shaking out in practice? Well, I think in the real world, when the medical oncologist gets most of these patients, there's very few reasons why they don't want to treat them. And from my surgical perspective, I answered the initial question with one, that there was a fair amount of over-treatment by the medical oncologist for these node-negative patients. So I'm very happy to see a test like Oncotype DX come along that we can use and then say, you know what, this patient has a low score. There's really no reason to treat this patient. Like this lady here, one centimeter, ER positive, pre-Oncotype, Chuck, I'm saying she's going to get chemotherapy in this country. It would have been recommended. Recommended, yes. Recommended. Maybe she would have turned it down. Actually, I think, Hope, there was a study done in Denver in a practice setting. It was U.S. Oncology where they showed about one out of four times the test was ordered. It actually changed what they would have done otherwise. What's your experience with it? Well, actually, you know, it's interesting because that survey, which, you know, was looking at utilization of the test when it was quite new, showed a relatively small number of patients whose treatment changed because of the test. I actually think that it's probably more like 50% now would be my guess. And I think we're going to see more data on that from a study that will be presented at ASCO. Because I think that there's more acceptance. In the early days of the test, we would send it. And we had 10 tests for free in the very beginning before the insurers were paying for anything. And people just wanted to know, but it actually didn't influence their decisions as much as now, where we really make a prospective plan. And I find that the test is even more useful relatively in women who have stage 1C tumors, grade 2, where we would have reflexly given chemotherapy. And now I do avoid it in about 50% of the women. David? 
You know, I just comment in that trial from Denver that was done by Ruth Oratz, the interesting point to me was that the number of patients whose therapy changed really was dramatically higher in terms of what the therapy ultimately received was versus what the medical oncologist recommended even after the oncotype. And I think that's important. It has implications for a surgical audience. I think it's very worthwhile for surgeons to consider utilizing tests like this to help prepare the patient and explain to the patient what their risk is. And if we're all concerned about some overutilization of cytotoxic therapy, I think it helps for the patient to be brought into that loop a little bit sooner. We want to talk a little bit also about the issue of hormonal therapy in this patient. This is kind of an interesting situation, Chuck, in that she was 49 years old and yet had stopped having her menstrual periods 18 months previously, and she was chemically postmenopausal, correct? Correct. So how do you approach deciding whether a woman's postmenopausal or premenopausal when you factor in age and time since her last period, et cetera? Well, when you use chemotherapy, of course, that's a different thing because of the effect of the chemotherapy. But in a case like this, we do know that the aromatase inhibitors do have the ability to reinduce ovarian function in some of these women, though in this case, being 18 months with amenorrhea and having the postmenopausal levels, I think it's likely that she is permanently postmenopausal. Generally, what I do, though, in these women is I will transition through tamoxifen for a year or two so I don't get into that difficulty. I don't think that the data saying that the aromatase inhibitors are superior to tamoxifen is so compelling that one needs to be concerned about that, particularly if it's a patient where you're forgoing chemotherapy because you're already saying they have a less aggressive, better prognosis. So I think it makes sense to transition through that. In this case, I have the problem of her history of the hypercoagulable syndrome and whatever it was, it couldn't be characterized, but it clearly caused strokes. So in her case, we talked about that, and she just didn't want to go near the tamoxifen. So we're starting her on the aromatase inhibitor, and I'm going to watch her levels a lot closer than what I normally do to see if she starts to come back. We're going to be touching on both local as well as systemic therapies in terms of early breast cancer. And obviously, endocrine therapy is going to be a major issue. Again, I'm curious, getting input from outside of medical oncology, David, what your take is on the AIs as opposed to tamoxifen, both in terms of how patients seem to tolerate it, as well as sort of the risk-benefit in terms of complications. It's interesting. After the initial AI trials, on paper, certainly the AIs appeared to have a better toxicity profile. I think most people have found the practical matter in day-to-day practice is that there's a much higher complaint rate relating to musculoskeletal complaints than perhaps was reported in the trials for a variety of reasons. I think these are still both well-tolerated therapies. The reasons patients tend to choose one or the other if they're postmenopausal, I find, usually is a cost issue if they don't have an insurance drug plan because the AIs are much more expensive, and the issue of the musculoskeletal toxicity is the biggest concern, notwithstanding issues like Chuck's patient. I want to ask Chuck if he can sort of give us a 30-second brief on the mammoprint. You know, there's a press release that came out that this gene assay was now available in the United States, and a lot of us hadn't even heard about it. What exactly is it, and is it sort of ready for clinical use, Chuck? 
Well, the mammo print is another gene expression assay that looks at 70 genes that was developed in the Netherlands, and it actually has been looked at and compared to the recurrence score. And interestingly, even though they only have one gene in common, they really track together very, very well. And it attempts to put women into poor risk, high risk groups to make a decision on do they need therapy, yes or no. I don't see that it really provides anything that the Oncotype doesn't provide. The Oncotype has a huge advantage in that it can be done on paraffin and you can selectively do it when you think it will help you. The other, since it's frozen tissue, you've got to change your way. You collect breast specimens, freeze it. So I don't see its clinical utility relative to the Oncotype personally. Okay, well, let's go to David's case. And one of the themes that we want to talk about today is the integration of clinical research into practice. And there's no surgeon anywhere that exemplifies this more than David in terms of his role with the NSAVP. And this patient is particularly intriguing in terms of that. David, can you talk a little bit about sort of your first encounter with her, her background and what the issue was? Well, this was a 61-year-old woman who had discovered a lump in her own breast, had a mammogram and an ultrasound, which suggested a lesion of about a centimeter and a half. And a core biopsy under ultrasound had demonstrated infiltrating ductal cancer. And she was, of course, quite concerned when she was referred. She's an active woman who lives in a sort of country club lifestyle, active in golf and tennis, and so she has a lot of things going on in her life, even though she is retired at the early age of 61. What's her family situation? Her family situation, her husband had passed away a few years earlier. He was a little bit older and had had an MI and passed away. And so she lives independently on her own. And, of course, concern to her was the risk to her life. She was, of course, concerned about maintaining her lifestyle and cosmesis. She lives in the desert southwest and wanted to maintain her appearance and the kind of clothing that you can wear in that environment. And lastly, she's involved, in addition to her sports activities, she was involved in a number of local charitable activities and really wanted to make sure that this cancer would not interfere with her perception of lifestyle. So in terms of some of the numbers, in a way, they're a little bit similar to Chuck's patient. Maybe you can go through the size and ER, et cetera, and what you were confronting in terms of recurrence. Right. So this was a lady who ultimately chose a breast conservation approach with a sentinel node procedure. And at that time, she ultimately had a 0.8 centimeter lesion. So it was a little bit smaller than we anticipated. Her sentinel nodes were, in fact, negative, and her ER was positive in 100% of cells, and her PR was positive to a lesser extent. Her 2 new was negative. We're going to talk about the fact that you actually brought up the issue of the Taylor X trial, but before we get into that, again, can you kind of get into the issues of how she was thinking about chemotherapy, where chemotherapy fit in with her, and would the oncotype, forgetting the Taylor trial, be something that might change what you or your oncologist might do? Well, she felt very ambivalent about chemotherapy. Again, she was very motivated towards continuing this lifestyle. And she's one of these women. In fact, she did quote to me that 60 is the new 50. And so she was very, very anxious to do that. By the same token, she didn't want to give up any opportunity for cure. And she recognized that breast cancer recurrence would be associated with ultimate mortality, likely from breast cancer. Was she like on the internet trying to get information or was she kind of turning to you? Well, typical of many of the patients we all see today, she did have a significant background in cruising the internet and she did raise questions about whether there are any kind of predictive tests that would help. So that's when you brought up the trial. 
Right. Well, when I see patients at the front end, we talk about local, regional, systemic management of their disease right at the beginning so that they have a sense of understanding of what's coming down the line. And I think in that setting, I also mentioned the value that historical clinical trials have given us, that she is building her treatment on the backs of many tens of thousands of women who've participated in studies. So when we had her information back, it became quite reasonable to turn around and say, look, we have a test that appears to work well. You've all just seen the data. It's been reasonably well validated. But there's an area where there's still some questions. Would you have an interest in participating in a study like this? If you participate in X, you're essentially indemnified against any cost of the assay. When the assay comes back, if you're in the low-risk category, you get to, as Chuck showed you, you get to get the hormonal therapy of your choice. If you end up in the high-risk group, you get hormonal therapy and chemotherapy. And of course, if you're in the intermediate risk, that's the group we're most interested in teasing out the advantages. And so what did she decide to do? Well, she was willing to participate in the trial, and in fact, she did. And when the assay was sent off, we got a recurrence score of 25, which put her just on the top end of the intermediate risk category. And she was, in fact, randomized to receive hormonal therapy and cytotoxic therapy. Now, Hope, this is really an interesting situation, which we haven't dealt with really in medical oncology for a long time, which is asking a woman to agree to allow the computer to flip a coin about whether she's going to get chemo or not pretty provocative situation. How do you find people responding to it, Hope? Being on the opposite face of the United States, we really are a very different population of patients. And I think that overall patients that we talk to are very enthusiastic about the study, but they are less enthusiastic about being randomized to receive chemo or not. They want to decide about the use of chemotherapy. So we have actually enrolled several patients in the study, but in Northern California in general, we find it quite difficult to randomize to chemo or not. I think the study, however, it's going to give us a huge amount of information is really important. And, you know, for all of us who've been treating breast cancer patients for many years, we're not going to give a postmenopausal woman who has a 0.8 centimeter ERPR positive tumor chemotherapy, and yet we may be in that situation really under-treating somebody. So it's very important to figure that out. I really would applaud you for enrolling the patient in the trial and getting this additional information. So this patient actually, as Hope said, very likely probably wouldn't have gotten chemotherapy with a 0.8 centimeter ER-positive tumor. Now she's going to get chemotherapy. How does she feel about being randomized to chemo? Well, because she ended up essentially at the cutoff point for intermediate to higher risk, I think it was an easier choice for her. I have to say that even I'm uncomfortable when I get a patient with a recurrence score of 12, which would be low risk by traditional commercial assay and randomizing such patients. But we all agreed when we were going to do this trial to be very, very conservative, and that's why those cutoff points were chosen. So if she had been randomized to no chemo, you think she would have said, well, you know, I don't know, maybe I had to drop out and get the chemo? No, I think she would have gone ahead and done it. Okay, so she goes into that, and is she already treated at this point with the chemo? Well, she is, but of course, because, as we've said, we're big advocates of clinical trials, we also did discuss another trial with her. And the other trial we discussed was NSAVP B39, which is a trial of partial breast radiation versus whole breast radiation. And of course, for women who enter that trial and randomize to partial breast radiation, they get that treatment prior to any cytotoxic chemotherapy. So this woman amazingly now has participated in two extremely important studies. And what do you think her main motivation was to participate? 
Well, you know, this was a woman, as I mentioned, that was already very actively involved in charitable work in the community. She feels it's very important to give back. She's led a fortunate life. She's well-to-do. She's active. And I think that this was another way of doing that. And I think presenting to her at the very beginning that her treatment choices are really based on women who've participated in trials and that we won't move forward without them was very, very helpful. Mel, did you want to comment? The only mistake in this case was ordering this test because you finally got a perfect patient that you don't have to treat. She's got an eight millimeter intermediate grade tumor, widely excised, ER and PR positive. She's perfect for an aromatase inhibitor. If you look at the Tabar data, this kind of woman has a 20-year, 95% survival. I don't think you're going to improve it with chemotherapy. And so now you're stuck in a terrible corner, giving her AC. I'd go out and get a mammoth print on her, and maybe you can get her off the hook. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now let me ask you, suppose her oncotype had come back as high. But you know what, Mel, it's interesting about that is that, as I say to the patient, you know, these are statistics, right? This is not the individual. And I think that although we don't know, the reason why she's being randomized is because we don't know the answer to that question, what to do with the women in the intermediate risk group. And potentially, these kinds of patients, the benefit from chemotherapy is indeed quite modest. But I think there are people, there is that 5%. And maybe we're picking out that 5%, so the benefit is much greater in that group, as opposed to the traditional way of looking at it. If you look at, well, if you have a 95%, we can't really improve much on that. If you're picking out a group of patients that really has an 80% or 85%, maybe we can. David? There have been a number of studies over the years that have shown that the vast majority of recurrences, local recurrences, when they occur, occur right in the tumor bed. And actually, very few recurrences occur outside of the primary quadrant in which the tumor is located. So the question that we might ask ourselves about radiation therapy is, can the volume of treatment be reduced just to the area at risk? And with a lower volume, can radiation therapy be compressed in time? How will the cosmetic outcome compare to whole breast radiation? And, of course, how are patients selected? How can costs be reduced if we're giving less treatment over a shorter period of time? So right now, the trial that we've discussed, NSABPB39, also known as RTOG0413, is a randomized trial that's looking at whole breast radiation in eligible patients versus partial breast radiation. The whole breast radiation is given after adjuvant therapy in a standard fashion. The partial breast radiation is given prior to adjuvant therapy, and the physician may choose either interstitial brachytherapy, mammocyte, or 3D conformal. This study will take patients to 4,000 for the sample size, and these individuals have to have zero, one, two stage tumors that are less than three centimeters, less than three positive nodes, and extensive introductal carcinoma is possible, but the margins have to be negative. The endpoints of this were in breast tumor recurrence between partial breast and non, but really the data that's likely to become the most interesting, in addition to distant disease-free survival and overall survival and recurrence-free survival, are the cosmesis and changes and late toxicities between the different technologies that are utilized in the trial. So in the end, we need to be cautious. While all of these techniques may be used outside of a protocol setting and are in selected patients, we need to keep in mind the size of the data set and how much follow-up there is when we recommend this to patients. While it's likely these will be equivalent, it is not clear what the long-term toxicities and long-term outcomes will be. So I just want to follow up a little bit more about this patient because David told me a very interesting story about what actually happened to this woman, and maybe you can relate that, David. 
Well, this particular patient went on B39, was randomized to partial breast irradiation. She received her partial breast irradiation without any complication or difficulty. She had some erythema that developed, as you would expect, and then this resolved. She went on several weeks later to get the chemotherapy that was recommended or required by her randomization in the Taylor X, and she received adriamycin and cyclophosphamide standard treatment. After the first course of therapy, she developed an intense erythematous reaction to the skin. Her partial breast irradiation, I should mention, was given as external beam conformal radiation. She got an intense erythematous recall reaction that actually delayed her second dose of treatment. We treat these with local steroid creams and with some systemic non-steroid anti-inflammatories, and it resolved and she was able to complete her therapy. When this has occurred, we haven't found it go beyond the second dose of chemotherapy, but it really can be quite impressive during the first dose or two. Chuck, I thought this was really interesting because usually the external beam is given after the chemo, and in this case, it's five days, stick it in before the chemo, and yet this woman gets this bad recall reaction. Have you seen that before? I have not in the patients that I've treated. I've tended to, so far, the patients that I've seen that have gotten the partial breast have been the node positive, so I've been using sequential anthracycline taxanes, and I've just been flipping the order to delay the anthracycline and haven't had problems. Mel capsule comment on target interoperative um, therapy? We use the interbeam for the target trial, and it's the easiest trial that we've ever had to sell a patient because basically... We ask them, are you willing to be randomized to a trial where, which would you prefer, 30 minutes of intraoperative radiotherapy while you're asleep or 30 days as an outpatient? And they all fight to and say, is there any way I can fix the trial so that I can get the intraoperative therapy? And who's eligible for the study? Three centimeter or smaller tumor, clear margins. DCIS also? No, but we are starting a DCIS trial at USC. We're not randomized, but treat 100 consecutive patients to see whether this is feasible. How many patients have you yourself used this machine on? Dennis Holmes at USC is in charge of it. We've randomized about 44 patients. And what are you seeing in terms of morbidity? We've seen virtually no side effects, no morbidity. One patient had some redness around the site for about a week. That's it. We also have the target trial up and have had a very good experience with it as well. But in terms of the recall reaction, we have a patient who had Hodgkin's disease 20 years ago, and she had a recall reaction with anthracycline. So I think, you know, you see them. Wow, (laughs) interesting. Okay, let's go to Hope's case. So this was a young lady, 29 years old. Can you talk a little bit about how she presented both medically and sort of what was going on in her life? This is, a, was, is and continues to be a lovely woman who was 29 when she presented with a very large breast mass. She actually was from Australia and had been traveling around Asia, met a young man from California and traveled with him for a little while. They got engaged and came back and got married and moved to Australia. I believe they'd known each other for three months. They got married in Australia and came to California. And she got a job and they were doing very well and thinking about when they wanted to have children. And of course, they had been married for about six months when she came in noticing that she had had this breast mass that had come up relatively rapidly and one breast was larger than another. So she had been seen initially by a primary care physician who also noted a two centimeter axillary node and she had a core biopsy that confirmed an ER positive, PR positive and HER2 new overexpressing invasive ductal carcinoma. And so she actually had been first evaluated in the community and then came over to UCSF. It was about 
I think a little less than a year before the first data was presented. As many people here probably recall, the data was initially presented in the form of an NCI alert. And so most of us gave Herceptin to everybody at that point, but she presented the year prior to that. So in those days, which was just three years ago, we weren't really using adjuvant Herceptin in patients with locally advanced disease. Nobody was really sure what to do. I'm not sure we know now, but what happened? What did you end up doing? What we'd been doing, actually what I had been doing and many of my colleagues, was that as we got sort of closer towards the reporting data for that trial, and of course we couldn't accrue to the trial any longer, in particular for women who didn't qualify for enrollment into the adjuvant trials, skin involvement, et cetera, many positive nodes with a prior history of DCIS, those women didn't qualify, we considered the use of trastuzumab outside of a clinical trial. This woman presented with a very large tumor and a palpable node. So this is a patient that we would commonly refer for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And we felt strongly that that was the right approach. There was not a neoadjuvant trial, but I felt that she's very young with a nasty cancer and really deserved trastuzumab as part of her therapy. So she received anthracyclines for four cycles, followed by a taxane and trastuzumab-based regimen, and then went to surgery. What happened to the mass in the axilla? And her mass responded very nicely. It didn't respond. Many patients, you know, sometimes you know that somebody has HER2 positive disease when they come in after their first cycle of AC because the mass is almost gone. And she did not have that response. And it'll be curious to see as we keep following the patients who are on the randomized trials whether there is a slightly differential subset in the strongly ERPR positive patients. But she had a moderate continued shrinkage of tumor, which continued throughout her AC and trastuzumab and paclitaxel. The node quickly became non-palpable. And what was seen at surgery? She had skin-sparing mastectomy. So then she had a skin-sparing mastectomy and reconstruction. And at the time of surgery, she had a small amount of invasive cancer, microinvasive disease, and a small amount of disease in one node. So a marked improvement in what she presented with. So can you kind of bring us up to date on where she is right now and what further therapy she had? Well, so she received radiation therapy following her surgery and did very well with that. And then we had a big discussion about her hormonal therapy options. And in fact, you know, because she had residual disease at the time of her surgery and is very young with a very aggressive presentation, I felt that she still had substantial residual risk of recurrence and death from breast cancer based on the initial NSABP neoadjuvant data. So we thought that potentially she would benefit from ovarian suppression. A lot of the data looking at subsets has suggested that women under the age of 35 might not benefit as much from tamoxifen hormonal therapy, potentially because they have very, very high levels of circulating estrogen. So we did recommend that she undergo ovarian suppression, and she is continuing to receive luprolide monthly. And then she started initially on tamoxifen, but really did not tolerate the tamoxifen well at all. She had severe and unremitting hot flashes despite medical therapy and nausea, morning nausea, which is seen in about 5% of women taking tamoxifen. So we switched her over to anastrozole, which she actually tolerates very well. She has a little bit of joint stiffness, very minimal hot flashes, and some vaginal dryness, which we've treated with the S-string, and otherwise is doing very well now about three and a half years after diagnosis. We have been quite hesitant to use aromatase inhibitors in very young women, even on GnRH agonists, because you potentiate ovarian function. You can actually potentiate ovarian function while on a GnRH agonist. Women recover their menses. But uh, this woman actually continues to have good ovarian suppression. Chuck, where are we today right now and sort of clinically 
what patients with HER2-positive tumors, how they're being treated and impacted by trastuzumab. Well, there were four large adjuvant trials that were set up and run really in parallel that all reported at the same time differences in design. And the striking thing with all of them was it really seemed like no matter how the Herceptin was administered, you had roughly a 50% reduction in risk of recurrence. And the early studies, our studies, were in node-positive patients, but as the studies came online, they added node-negative patients. And a major decision when these studies were set up was whether we would continue to use the anthracyclines or not, because anthracyclines do seem to be important for HER2-positive breast cancers in the absence of Herceptin. And we know that when you give the two around each other, you get cardiotoxicity. One of the studies led by the BCIRG elected to evaluate a non-anthracycline regimen, so we also have that information, and it does look safer. They looked at it in node-negative patients. So broadly speaking now, HER2-positive breast cancer patients are going to receive anthracyclines with some kind of chemotherapy. The major discussions that medical oncologists have is how low do you go in terms of the size of the primary and where they included in the trials and so on, which is inevitable when you start out with the larger, higher-risk tumors. Go ahead, Mel. You look like you know what you have a heart attack. Here, I want to ask you, are you sure she got reconstructed? Because this is exactly the kind of patient that reconstruction is contraindicated. We had two famous plastic surgeons here today at the Oncoplastic course, Dr. Maxwell, Dr. Spear, said if we know the patient's going to get radiotherapy, we refuse to reconstruct. So to me, doing a skin sparing mastectomy and reconstructing is a mistake. She needs a mastectomy and to get radiotherapy and reconstructed down the road if that's something she wants. I believe from my medical oncology standpoint that this is a controversial area, which at our institution, we commonly do reconstruction followed by radiation and have had fairly good results. I have to say, I mean, they usually need to have a capsule removed if they have an implant placed, but women have done reasonably well. You know, the women I really don't want to see a reconstruction immediately on are those that have a lot of residual tumor and for obvious reasons. But in these patients, we've not delayed the reconstruction and it'll be interesting to see. How many positive nodes did she have? At the time of surgery? She had a tiny little bit, you know, a few cells in one node. Well, this lady is a great example of targeted therapy of breast cancer. Very nasty tumor. She's now out three and a half years. She's gotten both targeted therapies with trastuzumab and the chemotherapy as well as the hormonal therapy. She's free of disease, doing well. What's going on in her life, Hope? You know, it's a bittersweet thing. These women you diagnose at young ages, and at least she's young enough to still have the potential to have children someday. It may be even more difficult when you diagnose a 35 or slightly older woman who has delayed childbearing. But So she is feeling, you know, on the moderately depressed side about the fact that she has to stay in her hormone therapy for five years. I really feel very strongly that she shouldn't stop now. And having had just one woman who stopped and then got pregnant and immediately after delivery developed to large liver metastases, you know, I've really encouraged her to stay on. And so she's going to wait, and then we'll send her to our infertility specialist if she has difficulty. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Breast Cancer Update.